I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. This is part one of an interview with Lisa Walden. Lisa was mentioned in an earlier episode when I spoke with Detective Christine Holt. This episode comes with warnings. It is, I feel, the most challenging conversation the When Dating Hurts podcast has published to date. The content and descriptions will challenge anyone. But my conversation with Lisa stands as a powerful example of what can happen when someone ignores all warning signs and becomes trapped by a serial abuser. If you feel this interview is too much for you emotionally, I suggest you shut it off and put your mind someplace else. If you stay with this, you will see just how bad things can get when an innocent woman falls prey to a manipulative, unfeeling monster. Here is part one of our interview with Lisa Walden. So Lisa, I know a fair amount about your story, but not in the depth I think we'll talk about today. A big welcome to you, and thank you so much for coming forth and wanting to tell your story. Uh, Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story in hopes that maybe I can help other women to get out of a situation that they don't think it's possible to get out of. Yes, that's very unselfish and generous of you. Thank you. So I think it makes a lot of sense maybe to kind of give us an idea of what were you doing before you met up with this fellow. Now, I think you met up with him in high school. Is that correct? I knew him in high school, but we didn't reconnect till after I was out of high school. So before he came along, what was going on and, you know, was life like with your family? And Life with family was great. We spent lots of time together because I'm all about family. Family is my number one. I was in college. I was going to school to be a journalist. Wow, that's great. Financial issues kind of got in the way, so I ended up dropping out of school before I finished. And uh, I moved in with my aunt and she went over to a friend of hers house. That's actually where I met Josh. So I just spent a lot of time with my aunt is really what I did because that's all I had to do at the time. But I mean, I spent time with family. Family, there was a mom and dad at home. and Oh yes, mom, dad. And then I have 10 sisters and five brothers. Some were adopted and I was adopted. So my mom and dad also had kids of their own when they adopted us. They adopted my family of five and then another family of five. How many people does that add up to? All the brothers and sisters and parents. I I might get 17 or more. Uh, 16 kids and two parents. Well, that definitely sets a record on this podcast for numbers of people. (laughs) So you are living, I guess, at the aunt's place. Is this right? When you meet this guy? Yes. So had you dated before you met him? When I was in high school, I wasn't one to date. My mom pushed me to go out on dates and pushed me to go out with friends. And I didn't want to. I was all about schoolwork. I wanted to do my work. I didn't care about anything else. So my first date was in college. And I didn't have have much luck with the men I chose to date, or the boys, should I say. So it's like one date and that's it? Yeah, pretty much. Was that your idea to call it off or it just didn't click for you? One of them wanted to hook up with my sister. 
So that didn't work out. And one of them was just turned out to be really weird. And in your opinion, what is weird? He was just a very unique person and interested in a lot of things that I could care less about. Can you tell us any more or you don't want to? Let's just leave it at that. Okay. So how does Josh come into the picture? My aunt wanted to go see a friend of hers. She asked me if I wanted to go with her and I'm like, yeah, sure. So we go over there and I'm just sitting there talking to her and she's like, oh, I got somebody you got to meet. My aunt's friend. She hollers out her back door where her trailer is. There's a trailer right in front of hers. And so she hollers, Josh, Josh, come here. Well, next thing you know, here comes Josh. And he comes in the house and she's like, oh, hey, this is Josh, you know. And of course, I knew him, but I didn't know him well. Like I'd gone to school with him, but we didn't, we weren't on a personal level with each other. Yes. But of course, he came in and I thought he was a good looking guy, you know. And I thought, well, this guy's never going to give me the time of day. Because I, I was sexually abused as a child. So I never regained self-confidence back. And so I honestly thought I didn't stand a chance with this guy. But I think he also saw me as an easy target in some ways. That seems to be the case in many of these that they they figure out this is somebody they can really work with. They kind of get their way with. Yes. They learn what they can use against you. And in this case, what do you think he used? My family and my lack of self-confidence and self-worth. How did he use your family against you? He took them away from me. So the isolation thing? Yes. I see. In what way did he do that? He basically, like, the first few months we were together, he would go over there with me and see them. And that worked out okay. My parents, every time we'd come over, would call me and say, look, we don't, something about him we don't like, you know, can't put our fingers on it, but... He's not the right person for you. Of course, I'm 17, and I'm like, whatever, Mom and Dad. I know what I want. Then it started being where he thought when I was going to see him, I was telling him things or talking bad about him or not being respectful of him, I guess. So he decided Mm -hmm. that I didn't need to go around them anymore. He thought anything I said to him, he said, well, what's that code for? Like I was trying to tell him something in code words. So what would that achieve I know you weren't doing it, but what was that going to achieve? I honestly don't know. I guess he thought maybe I was trying to get away from him before we ever really got into a full-blown relationship. Because, he I mean, he showed jealous tendencies right off. Okay. You had to kind of keep proving yourself, and the best way to prove yourself is keep them out of the picture. Yes. You were still in the dating stages when he is kind of playing these mind games with you. And you're still in college at that moment, or did you come out of college by that time? I had dropped out probably, it was about six months before he and I met again. I didn't meet him again until after I dropped out of college, since high school. And in high school, he's just like another guy there that you had seen. Yeah, yeah, just a, a student there, but I didn't really interact with, yeah. When you and he kind of become a bit of an item, what's that like? I mean, is it? It must be okay at times, you know, or otherwise you'd be out of there. The day that I met him was his brother's birthday. My aunt and I were leaving, and his sister-in-law is the one that was friends with my aunt. And she called my aunt. She's like, hey, y'all come back here. Josh wants to talk to her. And so we turned around and came back up the driveway. Josh said, hey, my brother's having a birthday party tonight. Do you want to come? And I'm like, yeah, I guess. And so... I went home and got all ready and dressed up and come back to the house. We did the birthday party. And then 
Josh and I sat outside in the bed of his truck and just looked at the stars and talked for like three or four hours. Sounds nice. It was just good conversation, you know, like he was sweet. And that was part of what drew me in as I felt like he genuinely cared about me and wanted to get to know me. And so that's where the dating really started for us. He would go to work. Like I stayed with him for, I guess, about a week. And then when I was fixing to go back to my aunt's house, he told his mom, well, I don't want her to go. Young me was like, oh, that's sweet. So I moved in. We had been dating a week. He was living with his mother. And so I moved into his mom's house with him. So they gave you a room down the hall somewhere? Yes. He would go to work and he would come home. And he'd come in and he'd put his arms around me and tell me how much he missed me. And just sweet nothings that really just kind of suckered you in. And then, you know, he'd bring flowers or he'd plan these little excursions like we'd go to the casinos one night or just do stuff together but it was just sweet things that he took the time out to do for me and that's really what drew me into him because I'd never had anybody treat me like that or do anything like that for me. How long would you say he was the nice version of himself before you started to see parts that weren't so nice? Three months. So would you say it was a pretty steady three months of good positive behavior without any breaks? Yes. So he kept that going for 90 days or more. What would you say some of the first things that happened that maybe made you think this isn't going to be so great? I had a storage building in a little town called Grand Saline, and I had to go get all of my stuff out of it because I couldn't pay the fee that month. I had a hope chest that my mom bought me for graduation, I think it was. It was full of my photo albums of brothers and sisters, my senior book, senior photo album, we brought all that back to the house, and I'm going through it. I'm showing him, this is my brother, you know, and he's like, no, it's not. You're lying. That's like your ex-boyfriend or something. And I'm like, no, this is my family. And then my senior book had a picture of me and the guy that I went to senior prom with, who was just a friend. He didn't like that. So he grabbed all of my pictures, family ones and not, and started ripping them up. Oh, no. And then he threw them in a trash bag. And we drove down the road. There was a creek up the road. And he drove down the road and threw the bag in the creek. All of my pictures of my family and just memories that I had. And then he came back. And because I wouldn't tell him what he wanted to hear, that those were all boyfriends and not brothers or anything, he took a hammer to my hope chest and tore it up. And that was my first sign that something wasn't right. But when you're 17, you're kind of stupid, so... How did he talk his way out of that one? He played the, well, I'm just, I'm just kind of jealous. And, you know, I, I don't mean to be that way. Maybe I'm too jealous. And, and I just really love you. And that sweet talking that you just thought, well, he just had a moment. That's quite a moment. Yes, it is. It's not like you can retrieve all those things and put them back in the hope chest, which is now in pieces all over the place. Your memories, all those things, your past just kind of went down the river, literally. Yes, it was heartbreaking. But, you know, when you're 17 and you think you're in love, there's certain things that you'll just overlook or you'll make an excuse for. Like, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I shouldn't have had that stuff or, you know. And then when you, you've been a, abused as a child, although it was just sexually, it warps your thoughts on love and how relationships should work. And those connections are, you don't know what they're supposed to be like. 
When you were abused as a child, can you give us any, at least a general idea? My biological mom was living with a man, and he was a dad to my two younger sisters and younger brother. He was assaulting me at, I want to say I was six. My sister, Desi, was five, and then my younger sister, Kara, was three. He was assaulting all three of us. You mean sexually assaulting? Yes. That is so awful. How did they come through all of that, do you think? I think we have really recovered well. I mean, there are lingering effects of that that are always there with you. It changes you as a person, even at a young age. Now, my younger sister, she was three at the time. I really think because she was so young, she's been able to put more of it behind her than my sister Desi and I because we were a little older and remember a little more. Mm -hmm. But I think all in all, we've really handled it well. Did anything become of him for doing this? Did he get in some kind of legal trouble? The school found out. They noticed signs of us acting different. Like, I guess they tell teachers to watch for this stuff. And so they noticed we were kind of acting out or acting different. One day CPS came to the school and they called us all out of class. They launched an investigation, and he ended up going to prison for, I think, 20 years. And he had three uh, three assault charges for us. And it turned out he was also assaulting my aunt, who was only, like, I think, 17 at the time. So he had a charge for her also. Was your mother aware of any of that? She swore she wasn't, but I'm pretty sure she was, because when he would abuse us, she always took my brothers and left the house. She got out of there. It was just kind of suspicious. I mean, maybe she didn't know, but it it just made it look suspicious. Do you have anything to do with her, your biological mother? I didn't. I didn't for a long time. Two years ago, she passed with uterine cancer. Oh, sorry. And for about the year prior to that, I decided to reach out and try to connect with her and give her the benefit of the doubt and see if we could have a relationship. And we started to have one. It just wasn't, wasn't like a hundred percent, but I felt like I had to do that. I'm glad that I did. Cause I think had I not reached out and tried to reconnect with her when she passed, I would have been angry with myself. So it's definitely something I'm glad that I did. Yeah. It's a form of closure. Yes. So the guy gets 20 years, let's say he's got to be out now for a while. He got out when I, well, right after I graduated high school. And then, I guess it's been about six years ago, my sister called me and said that he had passed. Well, that's a relief. Very much so. So he didn't do the full 20, obviously. No, I think he ended up getting out in 12. We can move back to Josh now for a bit. Josh goes through and he tears things up. He does things that can never be fixed. But on the other hand, he comes through with, I guess, some version of apology or something that at least enough that you say, okay, we'll give it another shot. He, he knew how to make tears come. He knew how to bring on the waterworks. That was what would get me when he would cry and I would see tears and he would say, I'm so sorry, you know, and just beg and plead for me to forgive him. And Did he do any of these things too, which would be like talk about his upbringing and he's doing the best he can, but he has some old baggage and that's why these things happen? No, he really never talked about his past. His dad and him did not have a good relationship. 
uh, later I would find out it was because his dad used to beat up his mom. Oh, gee. I guess maybe he had anger about that that he had held on to, but he never really talked much about his past. But still, that's a, a modeling situation where he sees that's how a man can sometimes treat a woman. Yes. So then he goes on and does that. Yes. So you get through this bit with the uh, hope chest and how old are you? How old is he? So I was 17. Josh would have been 18. I found out he had just gotten out of jail. He'd done a year in jail for check forgery. I didn't know that till about a year after we were together. And uh, I mean, he worked at his uncle's company for a while, which was a lawn maintenance company, just mowing like cemeteries and just basic yard maintenance. Then he got a job at a um, a place in Grand Saline. They make like plastic signs for dealerships and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he'd been there, I guess, about three months. He got invited to a Christmas party that they had. So we got all dressed up and we went to this Christmas party. He took some Xanax a buddy of his gave him. And of course, there was alcohol at the party. So he's drinking. And he's taking these Xanax, and those two do not mix. I'm just kind of a quiet person in the background, you know, and I'm just standing there with him, and a girl walks by that he works with, and he stuck his hand up her shirt. Oh. And, of course, I'm only 18 years old at the time, so I'm just like, oh, my God, what just happened? How did the girl react? Oh, she just laughed and went on. Oh. Of course... My instinct was I was hurt. Sure you were. And so I started crying, and I walked off, and I went in the bathroom, and I'm just, I can't believe what just happened. And so I'm crying, and, of course, there's women coming in. They're like, oh, honey, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. Well, the next thing you know, somebody went out and told Josh. Mm. So then in comes Josh into the bathroom. And he said, grabbed my hand and squeezed as tight as he could, and he said, you better dry it up. He said, you better come out here and act normal. So I'm like, okay. And I just kind of did my best to clean my face and walk back out with him. But that set the tone for the whole rest of the night. And so what else happened that night? He kept kind of doing stupid things, like saying things that were ugly to me or just disrespecting me. His friends kept asking me, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. You know, I'm fine. Well, then Josh progressed to spitting in my face. He would sit me down next to him, and then he would just squeeze my hand the whole time we were sitting there, and he'd just keep telling me, if anybody asks you anything, you better just say you're fine. His friends even started saying, man, look, stop. You know, she didn't do anything. He finally got fed up with listening to everybody, and he said, we're leaving. And so we walked out of the golf course here in Mineola is where his Christmas party was at. So we walk out, and as we're walking from the building to where we parked at, the whole way, he is punching me, kicking me, Mm. telling me what a low-down piece of dirt I am and how worthless I am. It was the longest walk. It was probably 500 feet from the building to where we're at, but it felt like miles. Yeah, I guess so. And we get in the truck finally, and all the way from Mineola to Ben Wheeler, which is about 20, 25 minute drive. He hits me the whole way home. 
and the face, the ribs, the arms, anywhere he can swing at. He's driving and hit me with the other hand. And so we get to his house and he says, stay in the truck. I'll go and talk to mom. So I'm like, okay. So he goes in and tells his mom, hey, you know, here's what happened. You know, I beat her up and and what do I do? And so his mom comes out and she just takes one look at me and she's like, oh my God. And, uh, I get in the house. He has me cover up my face, go in the house. And this is probably four days before Christmas day. And so they've got all this stuff planned for people to come to the house for Christmas. And I can't be seen. I looked, I mean, my eyes were both purple. Oh. My cheeks were purple all the way down. Both sides was purple and bruised. Oh. My hands, I think were bruised too. He wants me to be a part of this Christmas, but I'm not going in there looking like I look. And so he goes and talks to his mom and she says, well, let me get my makeup. And so she comes in and proceeds to try to cover up my bruises. Oh, is this like Christmas day she's doing this? Yes. Okay. And I'm just in shock that she's even doing this. I mean, she's going along with it and trying to. Why, when this happened, didn't you say she's got to go? You know, she's, this is not okay. She's got to leave. But no, she covered up for her child. Yes. It's trying to make it okay somehow. Yes. That's amazing. It made me feel like I wasn't the first one. Like we've been through this before. Like she knew the steps to take. Plus she had probably had to do it for herself. Oh yes, definitely. So how did uh, Christmas day go with people coming? Did they look at you like what's up? Well, Christmas day, once she did that, it, she couldn't cover up much. I mean, when I say there were bruises, there were bruises. Josh decided that I should just stay in our bedroom. I did my Christmas in our bedroom by myself. About three days later, we had a Christmas party at his Meemaw's. And when we went over there, I had healed up somewhat. Some of it wasn't as bold. So we were able to cover that up and go to the party. But Josh made me carry makeup with me. He made me go in the bathroom every probably 30 minutes to make sure everything was still covered. And he made sure that nobody ever knew what was under all that makeup. But there again, when this incident happened, that next morning he comes in, he's just crying, got them tears. And he's like, I understand if you want to leave, I understand. I'll take you home. I'll take, you know, but I don't want you to go. And I just took those pills and then I drank. And so my Young self again said, well, he took those pills and he drank and he didn't mean to do it. So I'll just stay. So I stayed yet again. That's the question everybody asks when they hear any of these stories is why do people stay? They can't believe that you didn't just kind of get your suitcase and head out. But there are reasons. There are real reasons. And, you know, maybe somewhere in your mind you think, I haven't had a lot of luck with guys and I hope this works out. I hope he behaves himself. I want this to work out. I want it to get better. So you're just hanging in there. You know, you're thinking maybe this was just a, a bad moment. That's what I thought. I thought he took these pills and he drank and he wasn't himself. That made him into somebody else. This isn't the man that I know. And that's how I made an excuse for him. So you survived Christmas and... Is he well-behaved for a period of time? How would you describe the months after that? He would go sometimes two or three months, and everything would be smooth as butter. And then it would be like the switch would flip. 
And it could be something as simple as he thought I was messing around with his stepdad or he was afraid I would. When he was at work, I wasn't allowed out of our bedroom. Like, I had to stay in that bedroom. I had to ask his sister to bring me food. And this is early in our relationship. But I thought it was just a jealousy thing. And I'll just, you know, if that makes him happy, then I'll respect that. Eventually, anything and everything I did to him was wrong. If I put on shorts, I was wrong. They were too showy, too provocative. I didn't need to wear those. Tank tops. Couldn't wear tank tops. I was allowed to wear t-shirts and I was allowed to wear jeans. That's it. His thing was that he didn't want you to be attractive to other guys. That's kind of, kind of it, right? His jealousy issue again. Yes. He didn't want me to fix up whatsoever. So how long do you two go with this before you get married? It was 2005 when we got married. So it was two years and it was good when it was good. And then it was bad when it was bad, but June 14th of 2005. And that was five months after my oldest daughter was born. And how did you steer your way through all the, I guess, getting a gown and where are we going to have a reception? How's that going to work? Was that fairly smooth or was that bumpy? Well, here's the interesting thing. We had my daughter. I was working at a company in Tyler and he came and picked me up one day for lunch. He said, let's go get married. I'm like, okay. So he never asked me. He bought a ring and he put it on my finger. And then he got the marriage certificate. He took me with him to get it and he picked me up for lunch. We drove to the local JP, got married in my scrubs that I wore to work. And he brought me back to work. That was our wedding day. During lunchtime? During lunchtime. How'd that make you feel? Not worth a darn. You said the local JP. What is that? The Justice of the Peace. Oh, okay. What'd you think of the ring? I mean, it was it was a pretty ring. But down the road, he ended up flushing it down the toilet. This guy is tough on belongings. He very much so. He likes to put them in water. So you get the one-hour wedding. Later that day, you were back at the house with the mom, I guess, right? Yes. What comes next? The next thing I did is ask him, can I call my mom and tell my mom? And he said, yes. So I called my mom and I said, hey, mom, I got married today. Oh, and happy birthday. Because it was her birthday too. And that did not go over well. She was not happy. So that was a very short conversation. She hang up on you? No, she talked to me and she told me she loved me, but that her feelings were hurt because nobody told her that we were getting married. And I explained to her, nobody knew. I didn't even know until we were on the way. So it's not like we planned this big ordeal. We just ran over and did it. I really believe the only reason he wanted to marry me when he did is so that when tax time came, we were married, and he could claim my income and our daughter. Yeah. A lovely fellow. I mean, he might have made stupid choices, but he was kind of smart in some things. So here you're married. You have a daughter. At some point, do you go get your own place to live? or? When my oldest daughter was first born, we were living with his mom in Tyler, and then we got an apartment couple miles from where his mom lived at and that's where we stayed 
then he started using methamphetamine and taking pills and he moved a girl into our apartment and moved me and my daughter out. Oh. So we went to stay with his mother while he had her in my apartment. That's different. That was while I was pregnant. So how does he break the news to you that you're out and someone else is in? There had been a lot of late nights of me waiting up for him to come home. Sometimes I'd just give up and go to sleep. But one day he comes over and he's got this girl with him. He's like, she's going to stay here. You know, you can go stay at mom's. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe she's just going to stay the night or something, you know. And so I go over to his mom's and then he's like, well, I want to be with her. And I'm like, well, okay. I mean, I'm, I guess I was about seven, eight months pregnant at the time. So I go to his mom's because I don't have anywhere else to go. But I still wanted to be with him for some reason. So I would go over to the apartment and I'd get his laundry and I'd go do his laundry and do this and do that just to try to win him back. Eventually, he got her out of that apartment and I came back. And then right after that, we had our little girl. How did he react to having a child in the house that was his? When we first found out I was pregnant, he didn't want to believe it. But, I mean, any dad can be like that. So he... Had me do the pregnancy test, and then he was like, oh, let's do it a couple more. So we, I think I ended up taking like five or six pregnancy tests, and they were all positive, of course. But then it became, well, who you been sleeping with? Because I've slept with all these girls, and nobody ever got pregnant, so why'd you get pregnant? And I'm like, I have not been able to go anywhere to be with anybody else, so this is your child. Eventually, he got past that, and when my daughter was born, he was... Loving, affectionate. I mean, he was just, when he come home from work, that was his focus. Mm. As far as being a dad, he really seemed to be great at it. He was glad to have a daughter. He was blessed, he, he seemed like. and But yeah, I mean, he loved being a dad. I didn't ever doubt that. Now, we still had our fights about anything and everything. Looking at him wrong, making the wrong statement. But he never took it out on her. So how much peace is there for a period of time? About the first six months of her life, it was relatively smooth and small arguments, but not like full-blown nightmarish arguments. I ended up going back to work. He wasn't working at the time, so he took care of her. Of course, me going back to work, it was, how many guys did you talk to at work? How many guys do you work with? That was his focus, is worried about me talking to other men. And so working was like my getaway, but it was also the biggest nightmare for me. But it got to where, like, if I was at work, I could sense when we were going to have an argument. I would get upset at my stomach. I would get sick. And I knew when I got home, there was something that he was going to be flipping out about. And almost every time it happened. Even if I was honest with him and answered something like, oh, did you talk to so-and-so? And I'd say no. Sometimes he would get so mad that, he would stay with me until I told him what he wanted to hear. And sometimes I'd just give him what he wanted to hear because that's the only way he would finally get off of me and just leave me alone. We ended up moving out of the apartment and we moved back in with his mom briefly. And then we got a mobile home. We rented a mobile home, moved there. And that's when I found out I was pregnant with child number two. She was a little girl. And while we were living at the house that we, the mobile home, he really got worse. 
as far as the way he acted and his craziness. He had gotten a job for a electrical company and they would go out of town for sometimes for like a week and do jobs. So when he come home, it was, who'd you talk to? What's this number on the phone? You know, anything he could accuse me of. And all I did was go to work, took the kids to daycare, picked them up, come home. That was what my days consisted of. Anyways, a friend of his he worked with had called the house phone, didn't realize that he was out of town. And I didn't answer it because I knew the number. When he got home, he was looking through the phone and he said, who is this? I'm like, I don't know. I don't answer that phone unless it's your mom or you. Kind of found out it was a guy that he worked with and that became... I called the guy, the guy came over, and I slept with him. That's what I was accused of. No matter how much I said, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I have not done it. He got mad one night, and he was hung up on that, and he pinned me down on the floor. The girls were already in bed. He had a hatchet and a pipe wrench in his hand, and he took the hatchet and put it right at the middle of my skull and held the pipe wrench up, and he said, if you don't tell me what I want to hear, I'll crack your skull open. Oh, my God. And I'm telling him, no, I did not do this. I did not. And he kept on. And finally, I said, yeah, you're right. You're right. I did it. By the grace of God, he put the hatchet down and got up off of me. And that was hard to even say that I did it when I didn't. But I knew it was the only way to stop him. Could have been the last thing you ever said in your life. Yes. And then my girls wouldn't have had their mother. And as a matter of fact, when I was pregnant with Autumn... Before I went into labor, Josh and I had had a fight, and he put a knife to my stomach and threatened to cut her out. That's how I went into labor. That pushed me into labor. Big, big trauma. So I'm every day trying to figure out how how can I get out of here? I mean, how? And then it's like every time he we would have an argument or a fight like that, it would be, well, if you ever leave me, I'll find your family and I'll kill them. In my mind, too, I'm thinking, well, if he's doing this to me, what's to stop him from doing this to anybody else? And so I was terrified at the idea of leaving him. And and his mom did come over to the house one day, and I told her, I said, I, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get away from him. And she offered to help me get away, but when it came down to it, I was scared of what he would do, and I backed out. And, and he always told me, too, you know, he said, if you call the cops, before the cops ever come through these doors, I'll have slit your throat and the kids' throats. I think he was angry about what his dad had done to his mom, but I don't really know how to pinpoint what made him the way that he is. I never could fully understand that. Well, and he was using methamphetamine off and on. I'm sure that, I understand that that makes you kind of, um, I don't want to say schizophrenic, it makes you paranoid. Kind of, when you go days without sleeping, it makes you angry. I think all of that played factors into. You have your second daughter, and is there peace in the land after she comes in for a while? With her, the peace probably only lasted about a month. It just got to where daily, no matter what, I did, if I didn't have the house clean enough, then I would get chewed on or I would get beat up. If I didn't have his shower clothes ready when he got home and his towels laid out and his clothes for after the shower, everything all laid out, then 
I would must have been doing something. I must have been up to no good. The girls, he never really hollered or, or did anything in front of them for a while. Um, usually they were in the bedroom or he would go and turn the TV up so they couldn't really hear. So they didn't get exposed to anything much until the latter part of our relationship. I think most of his problem was just he was paranoid about anything and everything. Like he'd think he'd hear a noise outside and it, it, I would, it would be me. I had somebody over there and, and they were trying to get out. Eventually, we moved from that trailer to another trailer that his uncle owned in Grand Saline, Texas. While we were there, that's when I found out I was pregnant with our third daughter. She was our surprise child because my second daughter was only five months old. So that was our surprise child. He didn't believe that I was pregnant then. And then it was that the two youngest were not his. The oldest one was, but the two youngest, he said, were not his. And no matter how much I pushed and said, yes, they are. I haven't been with anybody else. So we did DNA tests. His mom paid for them because she didn't believe it either. And to come back, they were all 99.999% positive. They paid like $600 for each test just to find out what I was already telling them. Because he still claimed that the test was wrong and that the two youngest weren't his. And while we were there at that trailer, we got income tax and we found a used trailer that somebody was selling. We got it and we restored it, did the flooring, new walls, and made it our own. His brother was living in Ben Wheeler on a property, and he told Josh, why don't y'all just move your trailer out here? About eight months later, we got that trailer all finished and moved it over to Ben Wheeler, and that's where we lived at until the end of our relationship. The thing that he liked about being there is his brother watched the house. So if I went outside or I walked to the mailbox or anything it was watched and so he liked that when he was not there i was still supervised and of course i hadn't talked to my family at that point and it'd been a few years he did let me see my mom at christmas time right after my youngest was born and she did pictures of us but that was only once that he ever let me see her i didn't really know till i got away from josh eventually that my mom had talked to my dad several times about hiring a private investigator to try to find me. And my dad just kept telling her, no, she's okay. You know, she just, you know, if she wants to talk to us. And my mom kept telling him, there's something's not right because this is not Lisa. Lisa does not just forget her family. My whole life, I was the one that was family oriented more than anybody else. So she knew something wasn't right, but she was abused by an ex-husband so she knew if you get involved and you don't do it right that it's worse on that person so now you have three daughters then what do we have happening josh worked for a little bit at that time and then he came up for a drug test and he knew he couldn't pass it so he just quit his job so i ended up going to a local nursing home and getting a job in housekeeping I did that for probably about six or seven months, and then they offered certified nurse aid classes. I didn't think Josh would allow me to take it, but he did. While I was doing housekeeping, I took nurse aid classes so that I could make better money. I got home one day, 
I don't remember exactly what it was that set him off, but it, he swore I had a cell phone hidden in that house. That's how I talked to other people because he didn't allow me to have a cell phone. I could not have one. So he had torn the house apart looking for this mysterious phone that wasn't there. He called me in our bedroom and the girls were on the other side of the house. He pinned me up against our dresser and he said, now tell me where this phone is. I know you got one. I know you do. And I just kept telling him, I don't, I have nothing. And he's like tearing the mattresses up, thinking it's in the mattresses and stuff, like beyond crazy. The knife that he had that he was cutting the mattress open with to see if there was a phone in there, he pinned me up against the dresser and he stuck it in my thigh. In your thigh. Yes. Big cut, gushing blood. And then he stuck it between my legs and he basically cut right above where my private was, about a two-inch cut. Oh. And so I've got CNA class that night. I can't go to the hospital. If I try to go to the hospital, I'm going to have to explain to him what happened. My kids are going to be gone. He'll probably run with them before anything, you know. So what do you do? So I got a T-shirt, and I did like a tourniquet on my leg and pulled it as tight as I could, bandaged everything else but as I could, and I went to class. And I couldn't tell a single soul what was going on because he always said he would slit their throats before anybody ever came through that door. And I believed him. I'm surprised they let you out of the house. I was surprised too. But I think he knew it would look suspicious if I just all of a sudden stopped going. And I think that's what worried him. He didn't want people trying to check on me. From that point on, it was the abuse was a daily thing. I mean, it, there wasn't a day that it did not happen. And when he stabbed me, when I got home from work, he called his sister-in-law. Of course, they're the, on the same property as us and said, hey, you know, she's got this cut. I need it cleaned up. We need it bandaged. And so I go up there to her house. I'm in the bathtub and she's trying to clean up this cut. And she said, well, I'm not going to call the police because I don't want Josh to go to jail. And I'm like... So you're just going to be part of the conspiracy to cover this up. I mean, that whole family had some problems. So we got that bandaged up, and he still would never let me go to the hospital. I kept working. I kept going to my classes and doing the best that I could. But at that point, he was so paranoid. He was using again, and I knew he was because I found a recipe for methamphetamine in my house. So I knew he was using and I'm surprised I never paid for this, but when I found that recipe, I ripped it up and I flushed it down the toilet. And he never asked about it, so he must have thought he lost it. Because I waited for that. I thought, I'm going to pay for this when he realizes that recipe's gone. So you got a daily deal with this guy. How long does that go on? We moved to Ben Wheeler, I believe it was 2010. So from 2010 to when I left in 2012, it was a nightmare of a roller coaster i mean he would come home from being out with his buddies or whatever and say i didn't have all the laundry done why is the laundry not done get in there and get it done and if i'm not moving fast enough he had a metal baseball bat and i can't tell you how many times while i'm trying to wash these clothes i'd get hit in the head the back oh no anywhere he could hit me at and then our master bedroom the bathroom in there he turned it into like a tool shop thing instead of a bathroom. So he had all his tools in there and he put three locks on the doors 
So you couldn't get in, like, you had to have a key, then there was a deadbolt, and then there was, like, a coded lock. You had to put in a code to get in. And so when he'd come home from wherever he was at, that's where he would go. And I would get the girls to sleep or finish doing what I'm doing. And then he'd come out of there, and I know he was back there smoking meth. I saw the, the light bulbs and the glass pipes, and I know what he was doing in there. He would come out, and, it, you know, maybe the dishes were still in the sink. And then he'd grab me by my hair, and he'd drag me back there. He'd put me in that bathroom and lock it up. He would proceed to do whatever he wanted to to me. Beat me up. I can't tell you how many times he would choke me out until I'm laying on the floor. And when I come to, I'm just like <gasps> gasping for air. And he'd just laugh. And he'd say, you look like a fish out of water. Don't you feel stupid? And then, you know, I would never know. Have I been out for five minutes? Have I been out for an hour? He'd get it, say, get up, get up, you know, get that blood off you or whatever if I was bleeding. And he'd say, you better go check on your kids. They've been in there for a while now. So I'd clean myself up or I'd try to. Like, if he made me bleed and it kept bleeding, each time that I couldn't make it stop, he'd hit me again. So eventually I would manage to get it to stop and I would be able to go check on my children. Did you ever get to the place where you thought, I got to kill this guy before he kills me? Many, many, many times that crossed my mind. What do you think stopped you? Because I was afraid if I did, I would go to jail and then my girls would have nobody. Or I was afraid if I tried, I wouldn't succeed. And then me and the girls were goners. At one point, he got a gun from a friend, like he paid cash for it because he was a felon. He couldn't own a firearm. So he came home one day with this gun, little bitty handgun. I can't, I don't know much about guns, so I can't tell you what kind of gun this thing was. But he would get paranoid at night. If he even heard a sound, I mean, it could be an animal. It could be a creaking noise from the house. He would think that I had somebody outside or somebody was coming to get him. And I can't tell you how many holes he shot in the wall of that house. Where he heard that noise, he would shoot through the wall in our house. I didn't know where he hid that gun, but I thought very often about trying to find it and using it on him. But there again, that was the same thing. If I go to jail, my kids don't have anybody. If I don't succeed in at least putting him down, not necessarily killing him, but getting him where he can't get to me, then I'm going to be dead. As much as part of me wanted to do him in, I didn't have the heart for it at the same time. No matter what. I just wasn't that person. This ends part one of our two-part interview with Lisa Walden. In part two, Josh's treatment of Lisa gets much worse. But keep in mind that today, Lisa is a survivor. Thank you for following the When Dating Hurts podcast. The interest we are seeing far exceeds all expectations we had. As an example, just two years ago, this podcast had less than 2,000 downloads. Today, we are above 400,000 downloads. You can see why we're excited. The more who listen, the more who better understand domestic violence. We see now that When Dating Hurts has become the platform where dating and domestic abuse survivors can tell their entire stories from those early days when they thought it was love through the horrific nightmarish times of emotional manipulation, power and control tactics, and sometimes devastating physical violence. It sneaks up on people. That's how domestic violence traps people. I want to give extra emphatic thanks to the survivors who have come to us and told us in great detail their personal stories of abuse. 
These generous survivors have afforded us open access into the worst times they have ever endured. Their lives were made miserable by domineering abusers, people who were relentless in the calculated evil they perpetrated specifically to devise invisible prisons around those they told they loved. These stories, although challenging to listen to, are made bearable because we know that each of the survivors will eventually transition from a victim to a survivor. We see the sheer determination and immense courage it sometimes takes for a person to regain freedom. It's important to know that victims can always get help, victims can always get out, and victims can become survivors. Okay, just a quick reminder, the When Dating Hurts book is available on Amazon. It's in paperback and ebook and audiobook forms. If you're a survivor and you have a story we need to hear, please contact me at Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. Thank you for listening.